Good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you for asking me to come to talk this morning. Uh, and today the question I'm posing is, what if this is hyperammonemia? And this is very much a follow-up uh, from uh, Chris's talk earlier. So the way this talk is structured is, the most important thing is to recognise how, how high ammonia. It's the what, when should I do the test, why, when and how. Um, then we'll look at some case studies, some diagnostic triggers just to make you think when to do an ammonia, making a diagnosis and then your treatments, particularly if you have a patient out in the DGH who's got a high ammonia, the question is what are you going to do next? The practicalities, the challenges, the acute management and a little bit on long-term management. So ammonia is the breakdown of protein catabolism and it's converted to urea in the liver by a series of enzymatic process in what's defined as the urea cycle. I'm not going to elaborate too much on that and urea then is harmless and it's excreted in the urine. Why is it even important? Ammonia is toxic to the brain. It's, uh, neuronal to it causes neuronal toxicity and astrocyte swelling. It is actually a medical emergency. Uh, it's time critical. And the problem is, particularly when you're t speaking about a neonate, encephalopathy is very vague, can be very difficult to pick up. And even very experienced clinicians can have a problem, let alone people who aren't used to paediatrics or neonates. And the important thing is it's early recognition because the earlier you think, oh, is, is there a problem with ammonia, the quicker the test is done and then, then it can be actioned. So the question is when to think of ammonia. It's whenever there's a sick neonate. And again, as already alluded to in Chris's uh, question, uh, case scenario is you have a sick neonate, is it normally people are thinking is it sepsis, cardiac, but also in the differential, is it metabolic? And the times that you particularly think about is, is was there, what, did, was the baby, a uh, term baby who was born in good condition, who then had a period for 24, 48 hours where they were actually feeding well and clinically a well baby. And then what happened is, what happens is the baby may just go off the feeds, uh, may have a little bit of vomiting, not quite waking up. They may be breathing a little bit faster, or if they get sicker, then they may have poor perfusion, full fontanelle. So, it, so it's unexplained lethargy, a floppy baby, vomiting, or if much further on, it may be seizures. So it's a sick neonate and you're not really sure what's happening. And your differentials really for a sick neonate are sepsis, which we're very good for treating, then people think of cardiac and what I want to do is raise the profile of maybe is this metabolic and to do the appropriate investigations. The other one that's very important for a neonate is it a trauma and consider NAI or a low sugar. Older patients can also present with problems. I know uh, and this may also hold true for the adult population as well. And the symptoms are a bit more vague. It's, uh, are there episodes and they're can be cyclical episodes where they have episodes of headache or not quite with it, in a, an extreme case coma, or they may have periods where they have quite bizarre behaviour and acting totally out of character, or they're presenting with seizures, or some patients can present with uh, episodes of vomiting, abdominal pain, 
some patients will present, they really don't like eating large amounts of protein. Uh, and they have protein aversion or have a bit of vomiting or they can have uh, uh, hepatomegaly. Or another story is particularly a woman around childbirth can get quite unwell. And that might be uh, a trigger to make you think of, is this a, uh, a, some sort of a urea cycle defect? So for older patients, they can be episodes of unexplained encephalopathy, episodes of bizarre behaviour, psychosis or cyclical vomiting. So the question is, how are you going to make an do, uh, measure ammonia? So it's one mil of free-flowing on an ETTA sample. It has to get urgently to the lab. Uh, it's on ice, so you need to phone the porters, phone the lab, and get it there on ice as fast as you can. Every hospital who does a cute 24-7 call should be able to measure an ammonia. There are problems, and sometimes there could be some fraught with difficulty, particularly if you're doing uh, ammonia, and sometimes things like jaundice can falsely raise the ammonia, or lipids can lower the ammonia, and the lab will say, oh, sorry, we're not going to give you a value. Particularly if you have high levels, it's important you say to the lab, actually, if you're in the thousands, the important thing is I actually want a rough number. The specific number isn't important, just I need to have a number and then look at the tr trend. Because sometimes they say, oh, there's a bit of interference and they won't issue the, the number. If you're really suspecting a high ammonia, you have to push them for it. What numbers are you going to get worried about? Preterm neonates particularly sick neonates, can have higher ammonia. So anything over about 150, you start getting worried, is there an inborn error of metabolism? Or uh, neonates over 100. And then for uh, children and adults, you would have said anything over 50, you'd start getting worried of. If an ammonia is high, and if you're talking about three, 400, you need to repeat that ammonia straight away. Uh, so you get your porters, bring them up, and you repeat this straight away. Um, what are the causes of a high ammonia? One of the difficulties is the sampling. There can be then primary or secondary causes, and I'm going to do a little bit about these. So I'm going to go through a couple of cases with you, because, I, again, I think this is how people learn. Um, so the first case is a term baby. Who was, in it, who was breastfed and breastfed very well initially, and then just became a little bit lethargic, poor feeding, the end of day two, early into day three. By day four, this baby was very sleepy, and the mum was anxious, an older sister had died, query sepsis on day seven of life. And on looking at this gas, what we can see is a respiratory alkalosis, which is quite uncommon. Uh, the pH 7.6 and CO2 1.2. And the other thing is the urea is 1.5. So in these cases, wherever you see a respiratory alkalosis with that history, you're thinking of, is there a urea cycle defect? So the causes of a respiratory alkalosis are, is there hyperventilation, anxiety, but the one, particularly in this context, is, is there high ammonia because it acts as a central respiratory stimulant and it reduces CO2. And the other clue there maybe is a, a low urea because you're not making 
the urea uh, in a urea cycle defect. The ammonia was elevated at 20, uh, 284. Um, whenever you have a, a history of an, an inborn error of metabolism, you're going to stop feeding, give the child as much dextrose as you can. And this child was transferred to pediatric intensive care where they repeated the ammonia and it was 120. The next case, again, I'm just going to go through the, was a term uh, male, again, bottle fed, uh, was initially very well discharged home on day one. But on day two, the midwife went out and what she noticed was actually this child was breathing very fast. She had a respiratory rate of 110 and was referred urgently into ED department. And initially the child looked reasonably okay. Respiratory rate was uh, 80, SATs were good, and the child was bottle feeding and, and your questioning was, was there sepsis, cardiac? And then you come down and look at the gas. And again, there's a, a respiratory alkalosis, pH of 7.53, uh, with a CO2 of 2.2 and ag again you're raising questions is is this a urea it's kind of your early sign is this a, a urea cycle or some sort of a problem with ammonia so the ammonia was elevated at 380 again you're stopping feeds give as much dextrose and scavenger medication and I'm going to elaborate a little bit more on these later and they started uh, hemodialysis the next one is a term baby, again, a well big baby who was discharged home. And this probably one is a bit more like Chris's case where the child was, is, is much sicker. Day two, the child was sleepy, poor feeding. It was a very, again, this family history is very suspicious. Uh, there was a, a baby with neonatal encephalitis, mum's brother and mum's uncle. So there were two, uh, deaths on the male uh, male neonates and this child was hypothermic seizures lip smacking and apneic episodes differentials when you're seeing a baby like this is number one is it sepsis uh, low sugars is there some hint of nai or the other differential would be a metabolic and again this child was much sicker so the gas now uh, you've gone more acidotic, but the ammonia in this case is extremely high at 983. On CT of brain, there was some cerebral oedema. Uh, the repeat ammonia was 1,600. The child, as in Chris's case, was started on antibiotic, anticonvulsants, uh, started on dextrose, intubated and transferred to PICU, had ventricular tachycardia, uh, the ammonia just it was huge at 2,500 and at this stage the decision was made to withdraw care. Your triggers for what makes you, if you don't ask for the ammonia, you're not going to know it. So things that make you think about it is are there posters around ED, PICU, um, on sepsis packs, on gas machines, are people thinking if it isn't sepsis, is there, is, is there an underlying metabolic disease and to think about it. And if you're giving antibiotics, at least consider, are there other causes? So when we're doing ammonia measurement, uh, it can be, it's a very difficult test. There are special ammonia free tubes. There's always a delay, can be a delay in assay and in neonates, it can be a difficult venipuncture. In the metabolic world, the biochemistry network, 
how they want your ideal sample is ammonia should be free flowing venous sample should arrive to the laboratory within 15 minutes ideally on ice this is very difficult to achieve in the real world the causes of high ammonia are could it be an analytical pre-analytical problem is an acquired uh, high ammonia or is it due what we call the primary inborn errors of metabolism such as urea cycle defect, organic acidemias, disorder of fat metabolism or other ones. The secondary causes can be transient hyperammonemia of the newborn, children with sepsis can have high ammonia, liver failure, herpes simplex children can have very high ammonias or anybody with liver failure or the other one is uh, children with uh, UTIs with stasis. I was just going to go a little bit about the urea cycle. So ammonia uh, through the urea cycle is converted to a harmless uh, metabolite urea and all of this happens in the uh, liver. This is the reason why we ask for certain investigations because you're trying to work out where the problem is. Uh, so this is why we will ask for ammonia, erotic acid and plasma amino acids. Depending on the blood level of ammonia, you may have an idea of what the uh, condition is. In sepsis, the levels can be high, but they're probably about 200. Uh, disorders of fatty acid oxidation, the ammonias can go up to 500, whereas conditions such as the organic acidemias or the urea cycle defects, the, the ammonias can be incredibly high up over a thousand and urea cycle particularly can be over 1,500. When we're asking for investigations uh, in metabolic terms, we normally say we do our first line, which is our test in any sick infant. And these results are available in minutes and hours. Second line, you're specifically looking for uh, the disorders of inborn errors of metabolism and these results are available in hours or could be a day and then third line is confirmatory testing which are probably genetic testing which could take weeks or months. So when we're making a diagnosis our first line investigations uh, full blood count, use and ease, a blood gas, an anine gap ammonia, lactate, sugars uh, and uh, blood ketones, CK, LFTs and urine ketone bodies. Second line uh, investigations we're asking for are plasma amino acids for the urea cycles. Uh, acyl carnitines would help us, uh, which could, should be a dried blood spot and a plasma. Uh, uh, acyl carnitine and this is particularly useful for the, uh, the organic acidemias and also the disorders of fat. You look for urine organic acids and also urine erotic acids. So the approach is the ammonia, you probably repeat it, is there an acidosis, is there an anion gap, ketones present or not because that will uh, what's the amino acid profile and erotic acid. So all of this would help us work it out. The important, if you are in a DGH and you have a high ammonia, this is really the bit that you probably want to get to is 
how am I going to manage this and transfer this child? This is a time critical transfer. This child needs to get to a unit, ideally with a filter, within four hours. Uh, you need to do a discussion with your PICU colleagues and also the metabolic team. When we look at Northern Ireland, uh, you can see that some of these hospitals like Achenagelvan and Thwa are almost one and a half or a little over distance away. So for a retrieval team to go out and come back, you're almost at three hours without doing anything. So the onus really is on the local team to transfer these patients to a centre with a PICU with uh, a filter available. So you're, the reason why uh, it's a time critical uh, transfer is because your outcome is dependent on your age of onset. It's worse in the neonatal period. How long you, the child, if the child's in a coma uh, and seizing, um, how high is the ammonia and what the underlying condition is. The outcome is probably worse for uh, a male OTC uh, who's coming in, who's in a coma in the in presenting in the in neonatal period. The emergency management, uh, supportive care, and Chris did a lot of that care, uh, and I'll elaborate in a minute, rep replenish uh, depleted products, removal of your toxic metabolites, which is through your scavengers, drugs, and to prevent load on the affected pathway, which is to stop your protein. Supportive care is essential. And what you're trying to do in all metabolic conditions is to reduce further catabolic stress, reduce energy uh, expenditure, and to prevent secondary complications and to correct dehydration, any disturbance in acid-base disturbance, treat hypothermia, electrolyte disturbance, and treat hypoglycemia or hypercalcemia. The emergency management is for specifically is to stop all feeds. You stop protein because you, you don't want that and you stop all amino acids. The way you stimulate anabolism is you're going to give as much sugar as possible, glucose as possible, and you're aiming for at least 8 to 10 milligrams per kilogram per minute. So as much sugar as you can, glucose as you can. And if you're in a DGH, the important thing is to stop feeds, get them on 10% dextrose. Then the next important is to start scavenger medication. And these are sodium benzoate, sodium phenylbutyrate. You're also going to give arginine. Um, these drugs, the scavenger drugs, are in sodium. So it's important you don't give too much. Uh, too much. So 10% dextrose and add in the scavengers. Most of the DGHs don't have the scavenger drugs. We may discuss, discuss whether or not you should have them. They probably should. The important thing is not to delay transfer. It's to stop protein, stabilize the child, start them up on 10% dextrose and get them to the center. Uh, the question is whether or not you're going to, not all of these patients will need a filter. Um, the numbers you're thinking about whether or not you decide to filter is above or uh, is about four or five hundred. It's again a risk versus benefit because to put somebody on a filter, um, they're, they're probably a neonate. So you need to have the correct size of 
the equipment, you need the team available, the experience to use the, the equipment, and do you have all the staffing? There are other issues are, could there be bleeding problems, hypertension, how used to the staff used to have, uh, of using this equipment? How long are you going to have to continue them? And that's depending on very much on the condition and when to stop it. Uh, and this will depend very much on how fast your ammonia comes down and at what level. In metabolics, we have the uh, British Inherited Metabolic Disease Group. And these are guidelines, included in this are the guidelines for all the metabolic emergencies. So this is what we use here and also everywhere in the United Kingdom. Um, and what you're going to do is go on to the British Inherited Metabolic Disease Group and go in under hyperammonemia undiagnosed. And then this will open up and it will give you, also included, it'll, it'll give you uh, the guidelines and it will also give you a calculator. For people who are not used to using the scavenger drugs, it can be quite difficult um, and people aren't used to doing the calculations. So what you would do is open up this calculator, put in the child's weight um, and then for benzoate and phenylbutrate, you give a loading dose and, uh, and you start a maintenance dose. And these are all very standard. So you type in your four kilos and they will give you how to make it up. The important thing for arginine is you actually have to know what your arginine dosage that your particular site uses. Um, all of these medications, the sodium benzoate and phenylbutyrate, can be made up in 10% dextrose. So as I've already alluded to, your prognostic factors are really your age of onset, how long you, the child has been in a coma or unresponsive or encephalopathic, how high the ammonia is and what the underlying condition. And so the important thing is if you don't think of doing the ammonia, it won't get tested and we may not make the diagnosis. I just wanted to have a look at the survival figures and these are the older figures before really ICU went to having filters. So this was an open labelled uncontrolled study uh, of 299 patients where there were over a thousand episodes of hyperammonemia. 93 were of neonates. The overall survival rate, rates were 84, but the survival rates were much worse for the neonates, 73%. Survival rates for neonates with ammonias over 1,000 were only 38%, and they were by far the worst in the male with the OTC deficiency who were coming in comatosed or who'd seizures at admission. So, these, so we want to catch them before the levels get to these, if possible, to those levels. Uh, this is a study which is a more recent study but uh, that was carried out in Japan. But at this stage, in the latter part particularly, it's where uh, ICU management was much better, haemofiltration and CVV was much better as well. So the five-year survival for the OTC deficiencies were much higher, 86% of the neonatal onset type. Um, what they felt though, which was children were likely to have some sort of neurological out, uh, problem if their ammonias were higher than 360. 
And this is why they were proposing the more long-term management. They're suggesting uh, early onset liver uh, transplantation uh, is able to prevent the complications and provide a good chance for uh, outcome. And I'm just going to go through some of these in a little while. So you get these patients through the acute episode, but every time potentially somebody with a urea cycle defect has an intercurrent illness or a vaccination, they're prone to have a, uh, another further episodes of hyperammonemia. These patients go home with what we call a grab bag, in which they go home with the IV, sodium benzoate, phenylbutyrate, and also the arginine, so that when they go into their local hospitals, they can present to the local team here, here's my emergency plan, here's my medication. The local team should also have it available in their ED department because they can't come, always come here to the RBHSC. They will initially have to start their treatments and be transferred. Uh, Long-term management, these patients are going to be on dietary management, which is they're going to have a protein restriction. They're going to be on lifelong scavenger medication and we have to manage their intercurrent illnesses. So potentially they could come in uh, and the neonatal, the, baby, the ones who present in the neonatal period are normally have less enzyme activity and they're ones who are probably going to come in recurrently. Liver transplantation, uh, looking for, for particularly for urea cycle defects, the literature is very good. The overall survival rate is over 90% for five-year survival. Um, these patients, after liver transplant, can go back onto a, an unrestricted diet, eat as much protein as they want, stop the scavenger medication, and their ammonias can, normal, can normalise within a couple of days. But liver transplantation is not for all of them. It's much more likely to be discussed for the neonatal ones or children who are going to come in for recurrent uh, episodes. It's a question of, like all conditions, risk versus benefit. You are substituting a urea cycle for somebody who's got liver transplant. So it's one condition for another. Um, what you're doing in transplantation is giving them enough enzyme um, there are ways to carry it out. It can be elective, which is you do not want to do this when somebody's having a high ammonia, critically unwell. Ideally, you get the patient in as good a condition as you can. An elective, an elective will have a much better outcome. Uh, living donor is an option. Uh, ideally, you want the perfect operation the perfect donor and we also in 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 metabolics can do domino transplants as well there is also another uh, another therapy uh, which is cell therapy hepatocyte transplantation it's it will happen what you do is give liver cells hepatocytes um, it normally would happen after somebody's had a neonatal presentation of high ammonia it's a bridging uh, a bridging procedure until they're big enough or until a liver transplant potentially can become available. It will, it's used for stabilization, get them better. But again, you, you have to get that patient through that initial hyperammonemia crisis, get them into a bit, uh, an episode of stability. This could then stabilize them until you're going on to potentially doing a liver transplantation. So coming to the end, really hyperammonemia is treatable. 
the outcome of severe hypermonemia is poor. This is why it's time critical. It's important you think about it and treat them early. Early consideration can be and is life-saving. Uh, life and ammonia, if you don't request it, it doesn't get done. You have to think about it to do it. And if anybody has any questions, concerns ever, please just phone the metabolic team. We're more than happy to discuss these cases. Thank you.